take a moment and imagine an Arab person. Now, imagine an American. How different are they? How alike? Is it the same person? Is what you imagine from your own personal experience or from the media? Today on Traverse Talks, you'll hear Dr. Lawrence Pintak give advice on what you can do to understand the Arab and Muslim world, how to check your news sources, and a history lesson on American exceptionalism. Dr. Pintak is a former CBS News Middle East correspondent and author of America and Islam, Soundbites, Suicide Bombs, and The Road to Donald Trump, and also of the book The New Arab Journalist. I feel like since the time of yellow journalism, since the time we printed things, that people have been easily influenced no matter what. You put something in front of their eyes and they're influenced. So now it's like we have video and audio and words and it's pretty and fascinating. The influence is so heavy. How would you recommend to a person to be self-educated about influence and fake news or bias? It is so difficult. And I mean so difficult. There are plenty of techniques that you can use. You know, where is it coming from? What website is this from? Uh, what's the credibility? I, you know, I teach students, you, the first thing you do, you go on the website. If you don't know this organ, if it's not the New York Times or whatever, go to the about section. Who are they? Does it give an actual name of, you know, is there a masthead? Uh, is there an email address for contacts or an ad- a, a physical address? If it's, again, not a mainstream news organization, where's their funding coming from? And, you know, these are all critical things. And look carefully at that URL because, you know, it may say Denver Post, and this is an example of the Denver Post, but it's maybe News Denver Post or I forget I forget right. the, the actual name, but there's a, a fake right-wing you know, extreme website that pretends to be the Denver Post. And this is true in many, many places. So be, and I, you know, I have students send me things, you know, submit things from these off-brand websites. There are a couple of places you can go if you see a story that, wait a minute, is that really true? Uh, Snopes.com, they fact-check many, many, many stories. There's also a a website called Media Bias slash fact-check, and they will give you a rating of that website. Mm. So it's, you know, it's middle of the road, it's left bias, it's right bias, it's, it's, you know, completely trash, (laughs) (laughs) etc. So, you know, so these are basic things you can do. But we all get trapped by this. I mean, I, you know, we obviously we we all live in in silos and bubbles at some level. And so my Facebook friends and I tend to open up my LinkedIn and obviously my Twitter feeds to anybody to follow. But with my Facebook, I'm selective. Yeah. So, you know, I have many senior journalists, you know, former heads of, you know, vice presidents of news at CBS or editors at the New York Times. And I'm always amazed when I see things pop up and I look at it that mm. this this is nonsense. It's fake news, literally fake news, not mm-hmm. just news that the government doesn't like. And it's been forwarded by someone who was a senior, you know, spent 30 years in the news business because he or she didn't check this. So it's very easy. What would you say to parents? How can they help instill these tools in their young children early? Yeah, the $1,000 or $60,000 question. Um, I think working with them to have critical approaches 
two issues, not just believe everything you see and not, you know, forget about news, just in general, question things, be skeptical, ask why, ask how, ask where. And then that, as they grow up, is going to hopefully begin to translate toward how they evaluate the news. Okay, so I love this suggestion. What I am imagining, though, is that some parents or some people who are being questioned would get very upset at young people. And they're probably the same people that don't question the news, right? Good point. Because critical thinking, don't you think, Dr. Pintak, is kind of painful? It's very painful. And, and it's, you know, we're sitting on a university campus, and, you know, this is a huge problem in American higher education right now. The lack of critical thinking and the lack of willingness to be questioned on the part of students. Wow. You're disrespecting me. You're upsetting me. And, you know, there are certainly, you know, plenty of space for trigger warnings and these sorts of things. But by the same token, we're supposedly preparing them to go out into the world. And, you know, depending on what world they go out into, and they may go out into a bubble and, and never face these issues, but the odds are they're going to face being questioned. They're going to face having their views questioned. They're going to face hearing and seeing things that offend them, upset them, that they don't like. But, you know, it's kind of like little kids playing in the sandbox. Playing in the sandbox, they pick up immunities, right? And, you know, we don't want them eating gallons of sand, but and playing with the dog and the dog licking their face, they're picking up immunities. And the same is true among students in higher education, being exposed to other views, being exposed to challenges, being exposed to nasty stuff. You know, we may be upset and horrified by studying the Holocaust, but there's a purpose to studying the Holocaust. And if we say, ah, that's going to upset me and I'm going to have nightmares or, you know, I, I, I just can't deal with that. I'm going to be stressed out. And then you ultimately don't know about the Holocaust. And so you don't know why it's inappropriate for people to be walking around in Walmart with masks on with SWAT stickers. Yes. You didn't learn enough of the history to know the symbolism of things and that the hurt is still there and will be there for a long time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we talk about the Holocaust, obviously, we still have people alive mm -hmm. who experienced the Holocaust, who were in the concentration camps. But even if we didn't, there are those who make the analogy between concentration camps and what's happening right here in the U.S., right, with children in detention centers. And, you know, clearly they're not being marched off to the gas chambers, thank God. But there are parallels. And if you don't understand, things are a slippery slope. And you take one step. And okay, maybe you can get away with that. You take two steps, but then you take three or four and you slip and you fall on your butt and you go right down the hill. And, you know, suddenly you're in fascism. You're in, you know, you're, you're sending people off to maybe not gas chambers, but you're locking them up without reason. You know, you look at what happened in Portland with people in uniforms with no identity identification, randomly picking people off the street. I mean, this is stuff that happens in the developing world or China or Russia. It's not supposed to happen here. Well, Dr. Pintak, do you think as Americans we have this facade or this belief of who we are and what we really are is actually third world thinking? Oh, God, yes. 
Well, I think there are elements of third world thinking, but we are certainly very impressed with ourselves. I know I'm asking you to predict the future, but I was just talking with a colleague. We were just discussing children getting ill young. You don't know the long-term effects of COVID-19. And they're being born into a society where you get health care if you work. So then what happens to people like that? Is something grand enough like COVID-19 able to change American society? Well, I think in the long term, yes, but not necessarily for the good, because we are so divided that I think this can just further divide us. I mean, we don't see a huge groundswell of we're all in it together. We don't see a post 9-11, you know, we're all Americans, we're helping each other. It's, I don't want to wear a damn mask and nobody's going to make me. Yeah. So. And even um, some of the protests that we've seen, it gets, it could be very confusing for people who may not be media literate, where you have people show up with their AKs in order to keep the peace, but they're all usually white and then you have people protesting who are people of color, it doesn't seem right to me. <laughs> I've wondered sometimes if uh, the United States of America is in its juvenile stage, where it's defiant against all that it's been taught and says, don't tell me what to do. And maybe we're moving into, we're moving into a mature, I don't know, 18-year-old stage. <laughs> that or we're becoming senile and set in our ways. <laughs> Because, right, Dr. Pintak, we're only, we're only a, a pittance uh, compared in age to the rest of the world's cultures. Oh, indeed. And yet here we are trying to tell other cultures what the right way is when they've been around for thousands of years. So, you know, as you said, in, in the march of history, we're nothing. <laughs> we just showed up. <laughs> and explain what American exceptionalism is. Sure. It's this idea that we are the symbol, and it literally traces back to a poem back in the pre-colonial era. It was written on a ship off the Jamestown colony, and it was this pain to the potential of this new land. And they will build this city on a hill, and Reagan used this term in one of his more famous speeches. So it's the idea that we are the city on the hill that is a shining beacon of light for the world, of freedom and opportunity. And we, you know, at many, many, many levels, that's true. I mean, we have, as a nation, always been that place that other people want to come and for opportunity, et cetera. But it also, taken too far, means that we can do whatever we want to. Anything we do is right. And there is no wrong. And you can't criticize our society or your un-American. Where have we heard that recently? And so it's a two-edged sword. You know, we want to be inspired by seeing the American flag, but we also don't want to believe that everyone should be under the American flag, uh, everyone around the world. I mean, not, if they want to come here, sure. Um, I, don't, I don't want to sound like I'm endorsing that idea that they can't come. But um, the idea that, you know, we go into Iraq and fly the flag and we go wherever it may be. So it doesn't take into account our differences. It doesn't take into account the fact that I have certain political views, you have certain political views, they may not align. But in an overarching sense, we are all Americans, and we are committed to certain values. It goes back for me, the critical thinking is painful, and differences are hard. 
So I often wonder if our society has just gotten, I think, soft or afraid of challenge because it's 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 been so comfortable and easy. So when you meet somebody who has a different way of viewing the world or a different way of naming a color, your mind hurts and you just you just retrench back into yourself. And some of this, not all, but an awful lot of this does come back to journalism. It comes back to media because we are such a divided nation right now, first and foremost, because our media is so divided. Oh, wow. uh, to, To betray my age, back when I was a CBS correspondent, initially in the age of Walter Cronkite, that's how old I am, um, but back then, every night, 80 or 90 million Americans would sit down and watch one of the three network newscasts, ABC, NBC, CBS. And that was when they were 200 million Americans. So the overwhelming percentage of adults were watching one of those three newscasts. Now, they weren't perfect newscasts. You could argue they had a certain slightly northeast liberal bias to them. But generally, they they weren't making it up. That's for sure. And back then, you would sit at the dinner table and you would have vicious arguments about Vietnam, about, you know, black power issues, about Richard Nixon. But the difference was we all agreed that America was in Vietnam. We all agreed that Nixon was president. We all agreed that there were racial issues in America. We agreed that the sky was blue. We don't agree that the sky is blue anymore because my news organization is telling you the sky is green and his news organization is telling you the sky is red. So we don't have that basic set of shared facts over which to argue. If we don't agree on what the facts are, if we don't agree that the sky is blue, that the moon is uh, circling the earth, that the earth is not flat, we can't have a rational conversation about geography or science or whatever it may be. And that's the fundamental problem. And that began first with talk radio in the in the 80s, with the rise of conservative talk radio, and then the appearance of cable television. So you had CNN first, and which was relatively balanced in the beginning. Uh, and then Fox came along, staking out a completely different political turf. And then it all spread from there. And now I look at the news media, and I find how CNN reports about the president and issue, issues around the administration and how the Washington Post report about those things. Mm. They've just gone too far. There's no longer a starting point of balance. Yeah. It's, you know, what happened that was wrong today. And that's deadly for democracy. I want to just for we're going to go back in time a little bit. How you had these debates at home with your family. Did you grow up in a household with journalists? How did you get started and interested in it? No. um, I mean, my parents were politically aware and we always talked about political issues. and, And certainly I was, you know, again, to date myself, I was of an age that I was looking at Vietnam. And literally the year that I turned draft age, 
was the year Vietnam ended, or they stopped drafting for Vietnam. We start, stopped sending people. So we had, you know, big political conversations. And my father had been a Marine, and what my mother wanted was, you know, go to Canada, right? And he didn't really like that idea, but by the same token, he also didn't really want his son killed in Vietnam at that point. You know, it was a, a lost war and, and a pointless war. We watched the news every night. You know, I grew up watching Walter Cronkite. So, you know, the day I walked into the CBS newsroom as a CBS correspondent to meet Uncle Walter um, was, I mean, you know, I still tear up when I think about it. So we were aware, but uh, I just wanted to be a journalist. I, I, a, I wanted to go overseas. I just always knew I wanted to go overseas. And, you know, I flirted with, do I want to go into the Foreign Service or something? But, but I really always intrinsically in my gut wanted to be a journalist. And, you know, in high school, I was lucky enough to be in a relatively affluent town in Connecticut. And we started a radio station at my high school. And then uh, I went to Northwestern for journalism, but also immediately started working. Um, I was a, first a desk assistant, well, we were basically a copy boy at the CBS All News station in, in Chicago. And then stringing for other people, doing freelance work for other people, and then managed to finagle my way into an internship in Washington, D.C. with AP Radio. And I suddenly found myself covering the White House and Capitol Hill. And covering Washington drove home to me that I didn't want to cover Washington. And then as soon as I, I finished my University of American in Washington while I was working, and then I immediately packed up and went to Africa freelancing. And ironically, in the, you know, in the big circle of life thing, Kenya, where I'm now moving, you know, running a program, the first story I did from overseas was from Nairobi. I'll be darned. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's meant to be. <laughs> because you've, you had the travel bug so early and you've done extensive traveling around the world, I mean, I think you've been on almost every continent except <laughs> maybe Antarctica. Uh, what advice would you have for Americans who travel? When it comes to cultural understanding, expect that it is going to be completely different and welcome that. And welcome that. Why else would you travel? Why go to McDonald's in Rome when you've got Rome there? <laughs> and why fuss about, you know, someone else's food or the smells on the street or the traffic when you went to experience that? And if that wasn't what you wanted to experience, go to Las Vegas. <laughs> and see the culture there in Nevada. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you've got the Eiffel Tower and <laughs> gondolas. Uh, I had a Japanese teacher in high school who said something to me, Mrs. Purdue. She said, it's not weird. It's different. And different is okay. Exactly. Exactly. What is it to you? Mm-hmm. And uh, I kept that in my heart for a long time. And I'm teaching my children and my husband because there are times where they're like, this is weird. No, it's different. <laughs> for the United States of America, how do we get more of this? It's just different and this understanding and opening ourselves up to other ways of living and thinking. Well, the lack thereof is at the heart of much of our division, isn't it? You know, certainly when we talk about issues around Black Lives Matter and treatment of Muslims and treatment of Hispanics, of the, the China flu or virus. All of these things are built on ignorance. 
a lack of, of knowledge, a lack of ability to recognize that it's just different, it's not weird. And so that, you know, that inability on the part of some, and obviously not everyone, to recognize and at some level embrace mm. differences mm. Uh, is at the root of our division. I mean, I'm, you know, I, obviously you're looking through the window, you know I'm white. I'm an aging white male. But I think much of what we are seeing right now is, you know, some subset of my profile uh, rebelling against the fact that we are in an age when a non-white majority uh, is about to occur. It's it's already happened in the, I think it's under nine or 10 years old in that generation. It's now a majority non-white population. Um, and so that obviously means the nation will be. And I think, you know, much of what we're seeing is that last gasp of control and influence and, and uh, defensiveness. Just as an aside, when I first saw you and met you many years ago, I actually thought that you were of Middle Eastern descent because you were very nicely tanned. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the reality is that um, I do, first of all, that's a good thing in my background when I lived in Beirut when Americans were being kidnapped, um, that some people would think that I, I was not an American or might be an Arab. And I actually have gone into Lebanon and been asked when I give my American passport, well, where's your other passport, meaning my Lebanese passport? Uh, and no, I'm, my background is, is basically Eastern European, German, Irish. But as you know, my wife is originally Indonesian, so my kids are, are mixed, and they were all born overseas. And so I don't know, maybe it's just kind of like a dog and her master. I'm around them so much, I'm picking up a little bit of... <laughs> I like that, though. It's, uh, I mean, it's for another discussion, but like, it's nice to be able to pass between cultures and be readily accepted, which gives me a heart for those who uh, are so different than the majority that they're surrounded by that they, they can't just blend because there's a comfort and an ease and a privilege of being able to just Absolutely. walk into a room and nobody even gives it a second thought. I love that your kids are mixed. <laughs> it's also interesting that there's this whole you know, debate over genetics or how people are raised, what shapes you more, right? And so I have three kids, two daughters, and then the youngest is, is a boy. And the daughters, first of all, we have the whole spectrum of skin color. So my eldest daughter is the darkest, and African-Americans think she's a light-skinned African-American. Hispanics think she's Hispanic. Asians think she's Asian, et cetera, et cetera. And then the middle, the, the other daughter, she did a, a year in Nepal volunteering at an orphanage, and everyone there thought she was either Indian or Nepali. And both girls are very consciously aware of being women of color. Mm. The son looks white and thinks white. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> And so it's it's very odd, you know, same genes, same upbringing, but he just has a very different worldview. Oh, I think you're, I'm seeing a glimpse of my future. My daughter takes after my mother, so she blends into either, you know, Indian, Filipino, Korean, whatever. And then my son is so white. <laughs> and then I'm, I look at them and I think, oh, this is going to be really interesting to see what happens. <laughs> and, I, you know, I genuinely think that part of the difference in their worldviews is that, you know, the girls are something, right? And people don't necessarily know what they are, but they're something. They're not clearly not purely white. And so 
they've always been aware of that and have been aware of being women of color. Whereas my son is white enough that everybody just thinks he's just plain Caucasian. And so that has shaped his worldview. So interesting. Yeah. You were mentioning this generation's, you know, the, the majority coming up that are young right now are, are mixed race or people of color. That reminds me about technology and media literacy. Like these people who are coming up and taking over as a majority leaders in our country, not just millennials, but all of them after the boomers, have grown up with this technology, have grown up with the internet, Twitter, have been bombarded with all this information. So how do you perceive that might change the culture of America as far as journalism or culture or acceptance? Well, to th- how many hours do we have? Those are three different <laughs> different interviews. <laughs> I know, they're pretty deep questions. <laughs> Let's start with I'm I'm particularly interested in your thoughts on the culture of it, especially as a father of mixed kids. Well, I think I think, first of all, there's there's so much more room for connections. So you can be linked into in the in the capital version and the non-capital version linked into broad networks of like minded people. So even if you're sitting in in, uh, you know, Casper, Wyoming, and most people are, and I don't know what's in Casper, but I'm making it up here, um, and most everybody else is white, you can connect to other people that are like you. Now, that's the good part. The bad part is that you can then end up in that silo. And the bad part is what happens when those sad people sitting in, you know, an Albuquerque or a Casper, Wyoming, connect to the wrong people online. And that's how you end up with women going off to Syria to become an ISIS bride. So, you know, there's lots of good and lots of bad with all of this. And it's a matter of, you know, being educated, judicious, intelligent, uh, watching your kids, what they're looking at, et cetera, et cetera. It sounds like we have to pay attention to each other out of love, though, because you could be lured. You could be manipulated so easily with your emotions. Like you were referencing earlier in the interview, how you have these, you know, journalistic alums and they still fall prey to fake news. We could fall prey to fake relationships. and Absolutely. And it can undermine our real relationship or what should be our real, real relationships. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about the family and how important it is to nurture your kids and guide them. And I mean, I remember when my kids were in high school here in, in Pullman, friends would come over for dinner and, you know, we'd sit down and have dinner and they'd say, wow, you, you do this every night? Yeah. Because it's the only time that the family can get together. So, you know, short of there being a soccer game that's, that's you know, out of town or something, no, we're all sitting down at, you know, whatever, 7 o'clock and having dinner and connecting for an hour. And then we may, may go off and disperse in different directions again. But otherwise, you have no interaction with your kids and you have no chance to guide them, educate them inspire them, whatever it may be. It's work? It's a lot of work. Mm. When you want something to do well, when you like in gardening, you want it to grow well, you want to have good produce, you have to put work into it. Ugh. Mm-hmm. So much work! Pintag. All right. So where do you get your news from? A lot of places. And it takes work. 
So my first stop every day is the New York Times because I do, you know, no matter what some people say, think the Times presents the most balanced U.S. view. It ain't perfect, but it is for the most part a straightforward presentation of the day's news. I look at the Post. I look at The Guardian, and I know The Guardian is liberal, so I know that when I'm looking at it. I'll look at Fox to see what's going on over there. And then I look at an array of international sites. So I'll look at the Daily Star or one of the other Middle East papers. I will look at one of the papers in Pakistan, the Dawn or or the Express Tribune. Now that I'm focusing on Africa, I'll look at the two papers in Kenya, the two main papers, and others in Uganda and Tanzania. I'll try to look at the Jakarta Post. So you know, a range of things. And then, you know, through the day, I'm getting inundated with stuff. I'll click on Twitter occasionally, and I'll see some stuff, and I might drill down into some of them. So it's very easy to get sucked into that rabbit hole. And I I made a, particularly with, with COVID, um, I made a conscious decision that early on in the COVID crisis that, you know, after a couple of days of watching people screaming, the world is ending on CNN, et cetera, I just started to unplug. So I said, all right, I'll, I'll do a, a round of news in the morning, what's going on. And then I unplugged for the rest of the day. And then, you know, around dinner time, I do another deep dive into the news. And then I purposely didn't look at the news before I was going to bed. My habit was always I'd look at, you know, lying in bed on my iPad, I'd read the news, and often we'd watch Colbert. And so I stopped all of that. And so I'm not you know, consumed by it. But it and and then likewise COVID, not consumed by this the sky is falling, the sky is falling. It's a big problem. And, you know, we need to know what's going on, but we don't need to listen to it twenty four seven. That is very mindful and healthy of you to do, especially as a journalist, a man of journalism. It's you set some boundaries on yourself because I assume that you are as curious about many things in the world as I am and you could spend all day Absolutely. Just like scrolling and reading and clicking. It's just so huge. It's endless. Wow. That's very helpful. Okay, so we're gonna I'm gonna go back a little bit to culture and I got a couple more questions to ask. As someone who has been in the Muslim world a lot, you understand a lot of the nuances of their culture, what would you tell a person or what does America need to understand about the Muslim world that would really help us? It's not a monolith. So when the president during the campaign said, Islam hates us, mm. oh, really? All six billion Muslims, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it is as diverse on every level as anything in the U.S. or anything in the West. Islam, in quotes, as a religion is hugely diverse uh, from the you know, fundamental divide between the Sunnis and the Shia, and I won't bore you with why that is, et cetera. But it is a fundamental religious divide. It is a fundamental cultural divide. And now in the modern day, it is a fundamental political divide. That's why Saudi Arabia and Iran are at each other's throats. It all comes back to their different approaches to Islam. And then there are a plethora of subsects within Islam that believe in everything under the sun, and yes, it all comes back to there is an Allah, there is a God. Uh, but, I mean, there are small schisms of Islam, like the Druzes in Lebanon, who believe in reincarnation. Well, there is nothing more anathema to mainstream Islam than reincarnation. 
So, and then culturally, it is vastly different. And even where women are covered in some way, shape, or form, and I mean something other than wearing just clothes, mm. it is dramatically different wherever you go. So, you know, culturally, how Indonesians view the Saudis, and because there are Muslims everywhere in the world, and they are diverse as everywhere in the world. So that's, that's the biggest thing. And, you know, we look here in the U.S. You have until, until the 2016 election, even politically Muslims were very divided. So generally the Muslims had been here a long time and were established in business. It's a bit like, like Asians. We're con more conservative. We're Republican. Those who had just arrived or in, in recent decades were more liberal. Um, now, because of all the attacks on Muslims in the in the in the rhetoric, they for the most part they are all leaning democratic. But politically, culturally, you know, you have you have right here in Pullman, Washington, which is a tiny little mosque because of WSU. You know, you have Arab Muslims, you have South Asian Muslims, you have African Muslims, et cetera, et cetera, and they are all very different. It's a big world. Wow. So. In other words, they're just like us. Just like, well, they are us. Right? They are us. The majority of Muslims in America are American citizens. Were you ever, like, when was a moment when you just were really sad for the United States? Oh, goodness. Um, when we reelected George Bush, oh. I think that was the beginning, because I look at America through an international perspective of how others are seeing us. And much of the world, and particularly the Arab world and the broader Muslim world, asked how could you have elected this man the first time? Mm -hmm. And so, because they were seeing the impact that he was having in the Muslim world, they were on the receiving end of the guns, as it were. But then when we re-elected him, because they, they understood that there was, you know, the first election was controversial to say the least, and you know, electoral college versus popular vote, blah, blah, blah. But then they said, well, how could you have done it again? But that pales in comparison to where we are now. I mean, it is so sad when you look at America through the eyes of people from overseas. Many, not all, obviously. They're not a monolith either. Anyway, I was just reading a piece the other day in uh, the, uh, the nation of Nairobi, of Kenya, column about exactly this, written by a, a Kenyan. And uh, he said, you'll remember Trump's comment about shithole countries? Yes. And he said, now America's a shithole country. <laughs> and that pretty much summed it up. <laughs> You're reminding me. I have a Singaporean. Uh, she's a U.S. citizen, but she is from Singapore. She has many friends internationally who have written her messages saying that they're praying for our country because they're worried for her. Because people do look up to America. And even at the height of the Iraq war, tens of thousands of American forces were in Iraq and the place was devastated, etc. People still felt good about America and Americans, not necessarily American policy. That's always been the differentiator. It's amazing that they can differentiate that. That gives it. That's like a huge favor. Absolutely. So, mm -hmm. is there this system then that's happening where we have this American government and policy, but you have a majority? Or I, I, I don't know. But you have a lot of people who are moderates and perhaps just quiet, nice folk. Well, we'll find out in November. 
not necessarily nice folk part, but the the quiet and differentiating them from the current government um, that don't necessarily buy into the politics of the current government. And But we've seen this after 9-11. We had the greatest outpouring of sympathy and compassion for the U.S. in the Muslim world, across the Muslim world, deep down in the Muslim world. And it was squandered in the years after. And then we had Obama, when he came into office, he came to Cairo, gave a a speech in Cairo where he said, you know, we're going to have a new partnership with the the Arab and Muslim worlds, a new attitude, a new message, and that was desperately needed. But then, you know, if you hark back to the old commercial of where's the beef, uh, that was what ultimately people in that part of the world said. Well, you had all the all the words were good. All the rhetoric was good. But and you didn't invade us. So that was a good thing. But there was never anything else. Action. Hmm. Right. Are there any other countries that, that go through this? In terms of how the world sees them? Yeah. I guess, I guess I'm wondering if in the grand scheme of history and how young we are. I don't think there there is. And, I, you know, I'm not a historian, um, but, you know, the analogy would be Great Britain and the British uh, imperial rule. But they were <laughs> never looked at sympathetically. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not now. You know, and I think that's one of perhaps the biggest differentiator between the U.S. and all of the others that had come before from, you know, the Roman Empire on down was that we weren't colonizers. For the most part. Well, yeah, for the most part. And we had fought against colonization. So we had that in common with them. And so I think that is also what made people look to America. Hmm. Dr. Pintag, what would you like to see America as a whole, as a society, as a people work toward? Being able to talk to each other, being able to have a conversation. I mean, until we can have a conversation across the political divides, we're pretty well screwed. No matter what happens in November, we are going to be a deeply divided nation. And how, how, how do we get there? Like, I don't know. I mean, obviously, if I knew, I'd, you know, I'd be running for president or something, right? You'd write the book. Write, <laughs> at least write the book, right? <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, seriously, again, if you go back to the, you know, my, our conversation about sitting at the dinner table during Vietnam and everyone's arguing, people still respected each other's views. Mm. You know, we didn't then unfriend each other, <laughs> right? <laughs> and when I covered... Washington in the in the mid 70s on the floor of the Senate the Republicans and Democrats would be arguing over whatever it was they were arguing over and then they'd all go out to dinner or go out and have a, a glass of whiskey um, and they would go into those classic smoke-filled rooms and there was some actual conversation that went on and dickering and horse trading and they found compromises that's how policy is done You don't have policy by screaming at each other, calling each other names, and refusing to talk to each other and refusing to give an inch. You know, so in November, no matter what happens, whether Trump wins, whether Biden wins, you're going to have a vastly divided nation. I mean, you talked about the, you know, the guys in the Coeur d'Alene's and places like that who come out on the streets with their weapons and, and defend democracy or whatever it is they think they're defending. Well, what are these folks going to do if Trump loses? 
And, you know, on the other side, how are the folks that have been out on the streets with Black Lives Matter rallies, et cetera, going to react if Trump wins? Yeah. We're going to have a lot of hard things to talk about. Certainly are. It's a relationship. And if you care enough about it, you put effort into it and your heart gets broken sometimes. But it all goes back to just how comfortable it is to not do it. <laughs> I mean, you know, which is why lots of marriages fall apart, right? Yeah, it's easier to say, hey, I'm done. I'm out of here. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Dr. Pintak, thank you so much for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Oh, my goodness. I wish you the best of luck in your... For two years, you'll be abroad. Oh, I hope there's many good works for that. Thanks so much. Oh, my goodness. America has so much to learn. We do indeed. Dr. Lawrence Pintak journalist, author, as well as founding dean at the Edward R. Murrow College of Communications at WSU, and now dean of media and communications at Aga Khan University. I'm Sue Ann Ramella. Thanks for listening to Traverse Talks.